Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Film Haven Reviews. I am your host Sawyer as always, and today we are continuing our Atomic Age theme with the Stanley Kubrick classic Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Very lengthy and cumbersome title. Quickly before we get into my thoughts on Dr. Strangelove, I would like to address my a podcast first, which is some corrections. Last week, there's a couple things I did. One thing, I kept saying Robert J. Oppenheimer, when in fact it is J. Robert Oppenheimer. Um, I know that's silly, but it was really bothering me listening back to the episode. I don't know how I didn't catch that. Second correction, my father so dutifully informed me that the book, American Prometheus, is not in fact 1,200 pages. Uh, I gave him an actual hard copy of the book versus the audiobook that I listened to. And he told me that it was actually 600 pages, which is a significant difference uh, than what I said. But that's a good thing because for anyone who was feeling daunted at the idea of reading a 1200 page biography, maybe they would be more inclined to read a 600 page biography. So if 600 pages seems more doable, then go read that book because I can tell you from listening to it, it is well worth the read and or listen. So that's my corrections from last week. Hopefully we won't have to do that again for a while. Uh, let's get into Dr. Strangelove. So first impressions, um, ooh, this is a unique film. Uh, my first thought was just, there's not necessarily another movie like this. Now, caveat to that, this movie does play a lot like a Mel Brooks comedy in some ways. So there is a bit of like young Frankenstein type comedy within it. That A lot of that comes from having Peter Sellers playing three different characters and the general ridiculousness of the scenarios that the people are finding themselves in while also playing characters that are very deadpan and serious at sometimes. There are characters that are over the top, but there's also a lot of characters that play it really straight. And it's the fact that they're playing it straight that makes it so funny. Bringing it back again to Young Frankenstein, Gene Wilder's character in that movie plays his role extremely straight. And then the ridiculousness and the absurdity can kind of play off of him. And that kind of dynamic happens a lot within Dr. Strangelove. The difference between, say, a Mel Brooks comedy and this one, a lot of it comes from the deep satire. I think one thing that I'm kind of learning maybe from this movie versus some of those movies is the difference between satire and farce. Satire being more of the witty intellectual brother to farces, physical comedy, slapstick stuff, pratfalls, that kind of thing. I feel like there is a bit of that in this movie, but for the most part, what makes this movie so funny is just how scary the implications are underneath. It's one of those things where it's kind of like my review for the movie Underground, episode 14. I talk about that idea of crying so hard that you laugh. It's the same kind of idea, except for in more of a, like, instead of tragedy and just being in such a downtrodden situation for so long that you kind of break a little bit, it's more of the fear. This movie was written just months after the Cuban Missile Crisis and filmed mostly in 1963 and then releasing in 1964. So this is during a time of heightened nuclear panic. The Cold War is at its height. We were literally on the precipice of Armageddon. So it makes sense that maybe even at the time, this movie hit even harder. 
I would imagine that people maybe even laughed more at this movie in 1964 than they would today. That's not to say that we don't have nuclear scares today with North Korea. Vladimir Putin has a habit of threatening tactical nukes on Ukraine. So the messaging in this film is still pretty relevant. But I think that there's something very unique about that time in 1964 that makes this film a uniquely topical satire. So the movie uses that fear of mutually assured destruction as its base for the comedy, which is kind of scary, but also undeniably genius at the same time. And it's really interesting because I did do a little bit of research after watching the movie because honestly, after the credits were rolling, I kind of was just sitting there thinking, okay, at a bit of a loss to know what to say about this film because there's just so much going on that I feel like on your first run through, it's kind of just trying to catch everything. I mean, honestly, I only laughed out loud maybe three times. I'm not sure if that's intentional, but from what I've read now that I've done a little bit of research, it seems like this movie is the definition of deep-seated humor, as in there are pockets and seeds that are planted into your brain as you watch it for the first time. And while you may get done with it and be a little confused by what it all means... The next time you sit down, you'll have understood the plot, and now you can really get comfortable with where the humor is. At least that's my theory, and partly proven by the fact that while I didn't laugh watching the movie that much, going back and thinking about some of the scenes, I kind of chuckled to myself because I realized just how funny they were. And part of that too may just be because I watched it by myself and comedies are always more laugh out loud funny when you're sharing it with someone else. I'm sure if I watched it with my girlfriend or with my dad who likes this kind of humor that we would just laugh like the whole time. But back to my point, I mean, I did read a lot of different reviews and different testimonies of people that have that love this movie and a lot of them say that it gets funnier with every viewing. And I can see that for sure. There's lots of things to get into. I mean, this is a Stanley Kubrick film after all. So there's almost every one of his movies gets better the more you watch it because there's all kinds of Easter eggs. And with this one, it's more so multilateral with the satire and the political and honestly sociological implications that there's just so much to chew on. It's hard to absorb it all in one go. So I've talked for almost seven minutes and I haven't even talked about the plot of the film. I just, I guess I'm assuming that most people at least know in general what this movie is about, but assuming you don't, I'm sorry that I've confused you. Let's get into it. It can be explained pretty simply, or I should say quickly, maybe not simply, but basically there's this general that has gone rogue and has sent a secret attack order out to this B-52 bombing plane. And their mission is to drop a nuclear bomb on a secret Russian military base. Now, the nature of this secret attack order makes it so that the B-52 locks all communications down. And the only person who knows the passcode is the general himself who went rogue. And the general is not going to tell anyone what it is. And he also locks down his base and makes it so where if anyone was to come into his base, those men that are guarding the base are ordered to attack anyone on site. Any bodies, any humans, doesn't matter who they are, 
because he he also warns them that they the Russians might come in as American soldiers, so you can't believe that either. So he's also cutting off all communications with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the President of the United States. So pretty much on all levels, the military chain of command is broken down, and there is this foreshore nuclear attack that is going to be happening on Russian soil in T minus an hour, basically. I, I could I don't know the exact time frame, I can't remember, but it is staggeringly short. Then you've got the Russian ambassador that reveals that the USSR has a doomsday device that will basically destroy the world with nuclear bombs under the circumstances that the Americans attack Russia. So it's kind of their contingency plan for an, att- an impending attack because the Russians don't have as many nuclear bombs as the United States. And so their way of leveling the playing field is creating this device that will just destroy everything. And of course, the device can't be untriggered once America attacks Russia, which is now bound to happen because there is no way of communicating with the B-52 bomber that is set to attack. So that's the basic plot. And then, of course, you've got the president and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, including General Buck Turgenson, played brilliantly by George C. Scott, that are trying to rack their brain in order to untangle this nuclear Gordian knot that they have created for themselves together with the Russians. And the Russian ambassador is, of course, allowed into the war room and is, of course, spying on them. And that's a bit of a running joke within the movie, which is pretty funny. But what I think it all really amounts to is just how fragile the safety of the world is when it's in the hands of humans. These characters like the president, General Turgenson, even the flight captain for the B-52 bomber played by Slim Pickens is this uber-American cowboy hat-wearing, you know, woohoo! we're going to go show the Ruskies a thing or two with this atomic bomb, give them a couple megatons for their trouble kind of guy, showing us that while exaggerated, of course, the personalities that are at play here, on some level, the people that are in charge of our national security are just another person like you or me. And I think that that comes straight from the Cuban Missile Crisis. You look at JFK and Khrushchev. These are two individuals that, while, of course, having advisors and people trying to tell them what they should do, are single-handedly in charge of pressing the big red button. And the fact that both of them are kind of posturing, you know, you move your missiles this way or we're going to set up an embargo and make sure that you can't move. You know, there's these staring contests that are happening. It's a very trumped up geopolitical version of a schoolyard fight or squaring up for a schoolyard fight. It's like, are they going to do it? Are they really going to meet at three o'clock after the bell rings? And I feel like that heightened sense of childish ridiculousness juxtaposed with the very real implications of world destruction is the basis of what this film was created on. And after reading up on the making of this film, I found out that Kubrick originally intended this movie to be a serious drama. And they had a series of different, more serious actors that they had in mind for some of these roles. But as they were writing the movie, they just kept finding themselves laughing at the serious characters that they had written. 
And I think that inability to take these very serious characters seriously created the idea for making a satire. Because the truth is very ridiculous, as fearful as it is. And so you can mix that fear and that ridiculousness and throw Peter Sellers on top of it. And you've got yourself a recipe for one of the most lauded comedies of all time, which is exactly what Dr. Strangelove is. Speaking of Peter Sellers, let's talk about some of the individual performances of the film. Uh, We'll start with him. The president, his character, the president was really well done. I loved how meek he was and how he treated his Russian counterpart as kind of a, a girlfriend that he's having petty fights with where it's, you know, no, you hang up kind of stuff. And, you know, I do like you. Of course, I like you. And it once again heightens that idea of these world leaders talk to each other so much that that they form relationships that are maybe a little beyond professional. But his standout role, I think, within the movie is obviously the titular Dr. Strangelove, who is a really fun play on Operation Paperclip which is the very real secret government operation that smuggled Nazi scientists to America in order to steal their brains, basically, so that we could continue to speed through our scientific endeavors and ultimately, of course, as always, beat the Ruskies. In fact, it was a Nazi that got us to the moon, stuff like that. And so Dr. Strangelove is this Nazi scientist that has been smuggled to the Joint Chiefs of Staff in order to be a scientific advisor to the president and his generals. And he has a lot of funny quirks. The way he talks is really funny. And then he's always fighting with his left hand, which apparently isn't ready to keep his Nazi past in the past, if that makes sense. And then we have George C. Scott's character, General Buck Turgenson. He really killed this role. I, I've actually only had him in one of my other reviews, which is uh, 1980's The Changeling. Great film, by the way. And his acting in that movie is incredible. And I really hadn't seen him in much other stuff, which is a shame because I know he's a big actor. Uh, he played Patton, which I haven't seen that movie yet, but I'm definitely going to do that in a theme later on. Waiting for the Ridley Scott Napoleon movie to come out for that one. But I was pleasantly surprised to see him in such a silly role. Uh, Apparently he wasn't happy about Stanley Kubrick's directing, wanting him to be such an over-the-top character. He thought that the overacting was maybe juvenile for his acting abilities, but in later life realized that it was one of his best roles. And you can see why. At some points he's overacting so much that you may think, okay, cool it. But for the most part, I mean, this is some of the best acting I've seen in a while. He really embodies the character and his facial expressions are so perfect and they hit the comedic tones on point. And he's also just kind of generally a likable character. He's so positive thinking and he's always popping gum and generally maybe not taking this situation as seriously as he needs to. uh, But that's where the humor comes from. And in the face of so many people stressing out, I guess for some people that make make them stress out more because they feel like he needs to be stressing out more himself. But for me, it kind of cooled down the temperature when I really needed it to happen. So really liked his character. I also loved seeing a young James Earl Jones. He was a random 
kind of a small character, just a soldier inside of the B-52 bomber. But it was just so cool to see him in such an early role, and he was so young. And uh, then, of course, Slim Pickens, the the guy I was talking about earlier, the flight captain, he his character was one of the highlights of the movie. And I feel like that was one of the characters I didn't know about before going into the movie because there's that famous scene with him riding the bomb with the cowboy hat, twirling it around, you know. that That's such an iconic image that comes out of this film. And it's funny because his character is so straight, yet yet so cartoonish. And I read a really funny trivia note on IMDb that apparently... James Earl Jones thought that Slim Pickens was basically method acting and wasn't dropping his character when they weren't doing the scene. But he was informed later that that just that was just Slim Pickens. That's how he always talked and that's how he always was. And he was actually playing the character very straight. In fact, it also said that Kubrick didn't inform Slim Pickens that the movie was a comedy and just gave him the script for his part in the B-52. And so... His entire role is completely straight, which is hilarious. He is just playing, to him, a very serious character, which is just another genius thing about this film. I also loved the rogue general who set all the actions in motion. It was really funny to see him slowly unfold from a general that seemed like he had everything together to one that was obviously crazy uh, and filled with conspiracy theories. And for a 1964 movie, for him to have this specific conspiracy theory about the water and the Russians poisoning our water system and everyone's bodily fluids needing to be protected. It sounded a lot like today's day and age and people getting corrupted by Facebook conspiracies and stuff like that. So yeah, overall the characters, that's what makes this film. It's the script, it's the subtext, It's the well-acted characters. It's a character comedy in the end of the Mel Brooks variety, but done with such a heavy layering of subtext that it just rises above anything that could be considered comparative to it. And because of that, I have to give this movie a 9 out of 10. I feel like it is so solid. The only reason why I'm not giving it higher is because I didn't really laugh that much. It was very clever It was very witty, but I can't just give a movie a 9.5 or 10 out of 10 because I know that I'm going to like it more the more I watch it. I kind of have to watch it to find that out. So based purely on my first time watch through and ruminating on it afterwards, I think 9 out of 10 is a more than fair score. It's got a 97 meta score, which I think is just, that's wild, but There's also a lot of cultural implications that come into this as well. And there's a lot of, I know this movie meant a lot to, I'm sure, a lot of people at the time and since, because living through the Cold War, having a movie like this is probably cathartic in a lot of ways. And I think that the movie needs credit for that too, but I'm still going to stick with a 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10 is an incredible score. So I know that there might be some people that say that I'm scoring too low, but for my experience, I think I enjoyed the movie 9 out of 10. So that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to be doing the British TV movie Threads, which is apparently a sort of what-if scenario following an atomic bomb detonation in London. 
And I feel like that's a perfect way to end this theme. We got the creation of the atomic bomb. We've got its implications on world destruction with Dr. Strangelove. And then with this movie, we might see what the effects of the atomic bomb might be on the ground floor. So tune in next week to hear about threads. And I hope you guys have a good rest of your week. And I will see you next Friday.